Uh, in a moment, I'm going to ask you to think of that thing in your life that you do really great. That thing that may be part of your job, maybe you're an accountant, maybe you're an attorney, maybe you're a, a doctor, a plumber, a carpenter, whatever that thing is. Maybe it's a hobby. Maybe you're the badminton champion of the entire universe. Maybe you are a fantastic uh, parent. Perhaps you're a good cook. Uh, maybe you take care of pets really, really well. I'm going to ask you in a moment to share that with somebody close by. Even if you don't know them, you can reach over and say, hey, I, I ride a bike. Really excellent. Uh, but uh, have you got that thing in your mind? Does it come? Do you have to think a lot about it, or does it just come like that? It comes pretty quick. All right, take a second and share that with somebody, with each other, the close by. What do you do really great? Go ahead. I'm guessing that most of you, um, I'm guessing most of you uh, had something. Now, if you're sitting there thinking, oh, I don't have anything, certainly you have something and maybe you just couldn't think of it, you know, on the spot and you had a brain freeze. But most of these things, you know, everybody has something. So here's the question I want to ask you as we begin today. Whatever that thing was that you have that I don't have, okay, because there's, you know, a, a lot of layers here. So there's a lot of layers I wouldn't have. Could I do that thing? Maybe it's bowling, badminton, plumbing, uh, you know, surgeon, whatever that thing is. Could I learn to do that thing as well as you could in a week? Of course not. A month? A year? Things of great value and skill take investment of time. And they take intensity and they take, they take this, this sense of focus. If I had someone to talk to, I would be playing piano. Uh, I took 25 years of piano lessons, for those of you that don't know me, and uh, I play pretty well. You, if you did basket weaving uh, for 25 years uh, lessons, you'd, you'd weave some pretty good baskets. And so if you were to say, hey, can I learn how to play Rachmaninoff in, in a week? Nope. Month? Nope. Year? Nope. Decade? Maybe, but probably not. Because those things require for us this, this level of time, this level of intensity, this level of focus, and those things can never be substituted in life, especially we have that mindset living in a shortcut culture. I want something for nothing, right? I want, to ha I want how many times in music, oh, I want to play the Rachmaninoff, but I just don't want to practice to get there. Well, here's the reality. You won't. You won't be able to play at that certain level. We're nearing the end of our conversations with uh, prayer, that focus on prayer. And this is a tricky one. And I, there are times as a pastor and a public communicator that you hope that people understand the intent of what you're about to say, truly. There are some times it's, that doesn't come into play. But there are some times that you have to say something and you, and you don't want to leave it out because it's critical to the, to the scope of the conversation. This is why we do a collection. We don't just, hey, let's have one week of prayer. It's a collection. There are many different angles. 
But there are times where you say, man, if we leave that out, we'll be remiss. But what has to be said is not always the easiest thing to hear. But it must be said, and I'm, I have, my prayer has been, I hope that you understand my intention. I had a flash yesterday. Have you ever had one of those moments where just things get super calibrated and clear? And then eight seconds later, it seems to go away. You know what I mean? There's just times like, wow, that, that's it. And here's the thought. It's not, it's not a, a super positive one, but it's a, I think it's a, a reality. I was with someone, and I, I know their faith. I know how, how they operate, et cetera. And I, it just hit me in our, for our church culture. And if, if you got to know me well, you know, sometimes on a Sunday morning, like, man, I wish, I wish we knew each other well, but more well for some of us, but we just not enough time to do that. I love the church. I do. I love it with, with a broken heart because it's Christ's avenue. It, there isn't a plan B. There are many amazing ministries that supplement the, the, the local church, and we need them. I want you to hear that clearly. We need them. The local church cannot do it all. But the hub of the New Testament is the local church. And so it's with that intention that I say to you that that's, I'm often broken for the church at times in America because here's the deal. Let me use music terms. I think well in those terms. Many of you know that the softest is mezzo pian or piano, and mezzo piano is medium soft, and mezzo forte is medium loud, and forte is loud, and fortissimo is like super, you know, passionate loud. And Christ, when he said, man, I want the, the church of God to, the, you know, the gates of hell cannot prevail, you know he was thinking in fortissimo terms. You know he wasn't thinking mezzo piano. In fact, in the book of Revelation, he addresses mezzo piano, you know, medium, soft. And he, he used the words he uses as lukewarm. He's like, gosh, it's just, it's, just so, it's just so not who we are supposed to be. And yet in our culture, my, my, my concern over a church that I love and have loved since I've become a Christian is that we want to make it mezzo piano so everybody gets the trophy. We want to make it mezzo piano so everybody belongs and everybody feels good and nobody, nobody's offended and nobody's challenged and everybody can, everybody can do this. But when I look at the words of Jesus, it's not the case. He included everybody, but he understood that there were certain things that were necessary in order to play Rachmaninoff recognizing that not everybody is going to play at that level or even wants to play at that level, but because we want to make it, everybody can play a Bach minuet, which is an easy piece, everybody, you know, everybody play a Bach minuet, that those who want to play Christianity fortissimo and play Rachmaninoff and press the edge of the gates of hell get left out and we don't address and challenge at that level because we're trying to make everybody feel good and be included. And what happens, it's no, no rock throwing here at, at any other churches or any of that junk. What happens is a bigger kingdom impact that we as a local church are part of many other local churches that should be pushing the very edge of the gates of hell that will not prevail against the kingdom of Christ. And for that reason... 
I know that there's that some in here might be like, woo, it's a little bit heavy. Excellent. The reason I changed my playing of piano in 1978 is because a little red-haired firecracker girl called Betsy Plummer, she played like a monster. And some kid like me coming in who goofed off my entire freshman year saw Betsy Plummer and said, man, I want to play like that. And for a dozen years, I practiced eight hours a day, seven days a week, and I took Christmas Day off because of Betsy Plummer. She has no idea. I'm looking today for those who would... Be passionate, fortissimo, who want that in your life. Doesn't mean we're perfect. Doesn't mean we got it all together and all that, but fortissimo Christians because you can impact the kingdom more than you think. And it's true when it comes to prayer. Last week, Rob appropriately said, hey, we don't need a theology degree to come to prayer. God's not impressed by our flowery language. We were given the Lord's Prayer, only 56 words, Rob reminded us. But then as you saw what he did, like an accordion, he unfolded that. Jesus had no expectations that we would only pray those 56 words. It was a template, and that for that reason, Rob said, hey, let's, let's unfold the accordion and let's expand it. When Jesus gave the Lord's Prayer, he didn't say, pray this. He said, pray like this. this is a, these are things that you would include. But what we do see is that Jesus had no problem saying, guys, let me just be honest with you. Let me be honest with you. For certain kingdom impact, to press beyond ordinary, to reach extraordinary kingdom results. It requires what I would want to capitalize on a Labor Day weekend. It requires labor. It requires labor. We're not earning our way to God. We're not doing anything of the sort. But there's a distinction. And the heart of God is always this. Because if you're not careful, you'll miss my intention and the intention of God. My wife and I were talking about this morning. There's sometimes like, ah, I'm, I'm, I'm wrestling with how to communicate this. And then it, it hit both of us. You know, God would, would say to us, man, I, I want you to experience the greatest depth, the optimum life, to lose your life so that you can find it. Because some people can have a misconception that God wants to, to lose your life because, the, because Christianity is supposed to be this kind of a, this kind of stark, non-fun, you know, blow out all the, the, the fun out the back door and just like, man, it's as hard as nails. And God, some kind of masochist, we're like, now I'm happy you're miserable. <laughs> but when people come to me and they're only playing a Bach minuet and they think it's it, after all my years of experiencing, like, I really don't need Rachmaninoff. I really don't need Brahms. I don't need Debussy. I'm like, oh, you're missing out on the depth of classical music. Now, for you, it may be, oh, you're missing out on Led Zeppelin or whatever your style of music is. <laughs> and so when, I, when we look at Christ, now watch this. Um, we're going to park later in Genesis, but Mark chapter 9, verse 28. If you do have a Bible... I encourage you to bring it out, uh, take it out. Maybe even if you have a phone, uh, take it out. But especially if you have a Bible, and uh, man, you're a highlighter, I'm going to give you a couple words. May I remind you, 
that it is not the deep theological words of the scripture that kick us in the pants. It is the very, very simple words. And man, there are two words here in Jesus' statement this morning that are pant kickers, pants kickers. <laughs> Mark chapter 9, verse 28. <clears throat> Something supernatural has just, has just uh, happened. And the disciples have failed. There's a casting out of a demon. Now that is, that is something that is a, a supernatural phenomena that, that many do not see. If you travel to other countries, quite frankly, you see it more often. We're camouflaged in comfort in the United States, but people ask me, do I still believe this level of supernatural work happens? Yes, let me just say publicly, yes, I do. I believe that the Holy Spirit is still at work. I believe the Holy Spirit still heals. I still believe the Holy Spirit still speaks. And God is just as alive today as he was uh, 2,000 or 4,000 years ago. And so when, when they, the disciples were probably frustrated, and when they tried to play Rachmaninoff, when they tried to operate at a certain spiritual level, I want you to pay attention at what Jesus did not say as equally as what he did say, okay? Mark 20, 9, 28. After Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately because they probably were perhaps a little embarrassed. Why couldn't we drive the demon out? And here are the two words. He replied, this kind. There it is right there. This kind can only uh, can come out only by prayer and fasting. In other words, this level of what you're trying to impact for the kingdom requires a, this kind of prayer, a kind of depth, a kind of intensity, a kind of focus, a kind of time. It's not going to happen in five minutes. So Jesus could have said, this is what he didn't say. This is what he didn't say. Jesus didn't go mezzo piano, okay? And this is, my, this is our concern today. And I don't know how many share that, but I am called to tell truth as I see it in the scripture, regardless of uh, if people care for it or not. And so, um, so uh, with that in mind, Jesus didn't say this. Oh, fellas, hey, it happens to everybody. I, you know, I, I've had bad days, too. And, um, you know, try, try again tomorrow. I mean, it'll be all right. Because, I'm, I'm, you know, I feel bad that you feel bad. And uh, I just want to make you feel better because that's my main goal here, you know. Uh, you've heard the phrase, everybody gets the trophy. It's where our culture is turning. But the, the reality is not everybody gets the trophy. Not everybody, everybody can come to Christ freely. Hey, Christ, I have blown it. I am here. I, you know, I don't have anything to offer. Perfect. I've stripped all, all the way, as we sang this morning, I've stripped all the way, man, I have nothing to offer. That's when God takes us in. But then we are not only child, ch children of God, but we become warriors for Christ, kingdom warriors. 
And there's certain training and certain levels that Christ is saying, guys, let me just tell you, I know that you didn't, that this didn't happen for you because that requires a this kind of prayer. And in the scope of the collection of this prayer, prayer talks, this, these, these conversations, my job today is to challenge those that want to play Rachmaninoff. Not to leave out those who are just learning to pray. Trust me. Man, if you say, hey, I've never prayed in my life, I don't know how to pray, awesome. Start, start with, start easy. Start, you know, uh, I, I get that. And I don't want to leave you out, but hear my heart. I don't want to leave out those who are also saying, man, I, I want more kingdom. I want to see more kingdom impact. Are we on the same page so far? All right. So this is Labor Day. Uh, and I, if you ask uh, the average person, hey, how come labor, what is Labor Day? It's a day to get, get off of labor. <laughs> But it was instituted, by the way, by Congress in 1894. There was a lot of you know, factories now. The Industrial Revolution was at a full roar, and factories now were overworking uh, men and children especially. And uh, it was unfair, and there were some, a lot of strikes going on at the time. And they, you know, human beings were saying, hey, wait a minute. This, isn't, this is not right. And they were trying to work it out, and sometimes, as, as institutions do, they'll say, hey, here's a, here's, a, um, here's a solution. We'll give you one day off extra a year. Oh, good. Now we feel a lot better. But at any rate, Congress instituted uh, in 1894 this day, this kind of a national day, to recognize the American laborer, to say, we appreciate what you do. We're going to give you an extra day off. So before we get into our main passage in Genesis, what I would like to do for you, I just, had a, I just had an incredible time this week, and you can do it too. You don't need a theology degree. All you need is that one Hebrew word, um, oh, Google, that's what it is. Um, <laughs> and all you have to do is, I, I, I want to recognize, before we, we go further in the scripture, I want to recognize some laborers of prayer, some names that you, want, that you recognize. And, and you could do this too. Honestly, it was, it was a study that I had to stop because of time I would have kept going. It's just so fascinating. Just Google the prayer life of Martin Luther, the prayer life of John Wesley. These are the men, and there's some women, there's men and women, these are the men and women that impacted the kingdom at a high level, and it just wasn't because they were super smart, thank God. It wasn't just because they were articulate and could communicate clearly. It wasn't just because they had somebody who knew somebody who knew somebody in their right time, right place deal. When you begin to look at your life, there is a, at their life, there is a common thread with all of them. Let me give you some examples. Martin Luther said it this way, I have so much to do today that I'm going to need to spend three hours in prayer in order to get it all done. <laughs> John Wesley has been a personal hero of mine. Our youngest child is named Wesley after John Wesley is such a, we, we named our kids both their first and middle name after heroes of the, personal heroes of the faith. Wesley Taylor McCoy, West, John Wesley Hudson Taylor McCoy. And so uh, John Wesley, as you, knew, uh, as you know, uh, was considered the founder of the Methodist uh, movement. And when you look at his life, he preached to the factories he rode 
many miles on a horse. In fact, how many miles did he ride, rode, ridden, ridden, rider? <laughs> it's in there somewhere. Wesley rode on a horse 250,000 miles. Let me put it in context. It's 25,000 miles around the planet on the equator. That means he rode around this planet on a horse 10 times. He had a prayer room. That prayer room was called the Powerhouse of Methodism. You can tour it today. Brought a picture for you. This was Wesley's actual prayer room. He required that his family go to bed at 9 o'clock every evening so that they could wake up at 4 o'clock and they prayed for two hours. He prayed in that kneeling for two hours every day. There was a chair there, you might notice. And that chair there was, are you ready for this? For assistant squats. He exercised because he didn't want to get weak in the winter months so that he could ride in the non-winter months. He was five foot three, 128 pounds. And he said, I always eat just a little less than I desire. Fortissimo. Fortissimo. It made a difference for him. D.L. Moody won thousands and thousands to Christ. Here's, a, here's what was said of Moody. Moody always demanded, watch this, intense and focused prayer in preparation for his revival campaigns. He just didn't go and say, hey, let's just bow our heads for a few minutes before we go into this campaign to win souls from darkness into light. He understood the kingdom impact that he was going to, to make, and he said, we must take this seriously, and we must do Rachmaninoff prayer, this kind of prayer. Christ is calling us this morning some of you that would say, I'm calling you to this kind of prayer. Someone suggested even yesterday, wrote me an email and said, what if we had just one person in every small group of our church that would say, this kind of prayer. It would not only impact this church, this corner of this city, but this world, I promise you. Christ is saying, come on, this kind of prayer. Do you remember George Mueller, legendary prayer warrior? George Mueller had uh, orphan, orphanages, as you know, and he took care of his, in between when he started as an adult until he was 70 years old. 10,000 boys he took care of. 10,000 boys. But what you may not know that I didn't know is that he, quote, unquote, retired at 70. At 70, he began to uh, become an evangelist. And he traveled from age 70 to 88. He traveled 200,000 miles. That's a different retirement plan. George Mueller, when he first became a Christian, he had five friends who didn't know Christ. And he began to pray for them. And he prayed intensely for them. And within the first few months, the first one came to Christ. Within 10 years, two others came to Christ. After 25 years of praying for the remaining two, the fourth one came to Christ. 
And 65 years or so later, after become, when he became a Christian and the time he died to the time of his death, he maintained a constant, daily, intense, fortissimo, Rachmaninoff, this kind of prayer for that fifth friend. And he died without his friend coming to know Christ. George Mueller's, Mueller's uh, funeral looked like this. They had to shut down the entire city for his funeral. But before they laid that coffin in the ground, number five came to Christ. A lifetime of prayer for someone else. Have you ever heard the name Nicholas Zinzendorf? <laughs> he was a Moravian. The Moravians had intense um, uh, influence on John Wesley. And Nicholas Zinzendorf was a, a Moravian. And they believed in, in a depth of prayer. And Zinzendorf had an idea. Hey, let's start a prayer, prayer chain. Let's do it for 24 hours. Let's do it for 24 hours, seven days a week. You know how long it lasted? Anybody want to take a guess? A hundred years. And by the time they had reached 65 years of 24-hour prayer, seven days a week, this little Moravian community had sent out 300 missionaries into the world. Why? Because it's this kind of prayer. It's this kind of prayer that makes an impact. It was one of my first uh, bubble busters when I became a, a Christian. I may have shared this with some of you, but I was obnoxiously zealous when I came to Christ. That's how I describe it. Didn't care. Social skills were not what they needed to be. Um, my Jewish piano teacher heard more about Jesus that year, I'm sure, than he accumulatively did his entire life. I just received an email. This just hit me. In a very uh, liberal conservatory, I had just come to Christ. I was doing my master's piano recital, and I did an encore. And uh, my encore consisted of hymns that I had arranged in a classical, kind of concert classical arrangement. And I said, hey, before I start this, let me just tell you about how Jesus has changed my life. Didn't happen a lot in that conservatory. And last week, I got an email. Just think about this. This is 1981, so too tired to do the math. Ever what that is? 30, 36, thank you, years ago. I got an email last week and said, hey, I don't know if, if you, know, you remember me, which I didn't. I was sitting in that room when you gave your testimony. And what a powerful difference it, it made. He said, now I'm a retired police officer. So he was a double base. I'm not sure, you know, what impact that had, you know. <laughs> but um, it makes a difference. When I first became a Christian, they were going to have an all-night prayer meeting at my church. Dude, I'm in. I mean, it's like, hey, let's pack a lunch. Let's go for it. I could not wait. I, I had in my mind showing up to a, to a room filled like this. And uh, I came, and it was the pastor and his wife and me. 
They had a little rail at the, the front of the church. We went up, we got on our knees. Steve, why don't you go first? I was new. Hey, God, you know, I was like, hey, God, this is cool. <laughs> I mean, you know how it is. It's beautiful, that beautiful rawness of a new, a new Christian. Hey, it's cool. How you doing? <laughs> What'd you do today? <laughs> Here's what I did, like you didn't know. You know? <laughs> Amen. <laughs> Your turn. Pastor prayed a lot more elegantly than I did. Uh, his wife prayed. And, uh, well, let's go on home. And I was shattered. I thought I had joined a, I thought I joined a crew. Listen, and I say it with, with love and a broken heart. I, I thought I joined a crew that was as passionate about God as I was about my Rachmaninoff. And I was awfully passionate about honing my skill. And so when I look at what Jesus says, I'm like, oh, thanks. Thanks for not lowering the bar. And I think there's, an, you know, we ask, does God expect this? I'm like, yeah, because he wants us to experience a deeper level, not because he's, you know, a, a, you know, a hard head, or, or, but you're like, oh, man, there's a kingdom impact. And when you begin to impact the kingdom, and we begin to impact the world, and I'll remind you, our 10-year vision is, is to impact a, a, a nation. And I believe God is going to take it beyond the nation he already is to other nations. I just heard this week I got a call from the Middle East, not an email, but a call. Just Steve wanted to call you in person and let you know that the Arabic translation of exchange is now complete. And we're moving, you know, God is calling us to impact a world. But in order to do that, I'm challenging you and me, by the way, and me. Let's not forget this kind of prayer, this level of intensity and not allow ourselves to be a mezzo-piano church. Would you be into that, most of you? And so we asked, would Jesus be in, you know, expect us? Well, there's a, a picture you might have seen. Uh, it goes like this. The extra mile is rare, rarely crowded. And when Jesus was getting ready to save the world... And before he did that, he went into Gethsemane, and he was praying. You might think, well, the disciples, remember, they fell asleep, not all of them. Because, again, Jesus didn't give the trophy to everybody. You remember when there were the most intense times, Jesus always, always called James, John, and Peter. Guys, you know, I need you to come with me, because he was trying to train them as future leaders of the church. And each of these boys, they wrote books here in the New Testament. He understood, I'm going to invest in certain. Did Jesus like, man, I feel bad for the other nine. You know, I kind of left them out. You know, they, maybe I should, you know. Jesus was like, I'm here not for a popularity contest or a trophy-giving contest, but I'm here to impact the kingdom. And for whatever reason he picked those three boys, I, I can't explain to you, but he did. So when he, at the Gethsemane, when he went to pray, watch this. Matthew 14, verse 32. 
they went to a place called Gethsemane and Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. In other words, that's the entire group. But then he took Peter, James, and John along with him. He said, I'm looking for those, a few men, a few good men, as the service says, a few good men that will have this kind of prayer with me. This was intense. Christ was intense. Something enormous was about to happen. So he took these three boys along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. And so, you know, when he came back out, they were snoozing, right? Sure, they were tired, they're distressed. Again, here's what Jesus didn't say. Oh, it's okay, man, I'm tired too. You want a little orange juice? I got a power bar. Look, I'm not trying to be a hard nose, but I am trying to get to the reality of Christ. Couldn't you pray with me an hour? Guys, come on. Do you, do you think he said, honestly, we get real, all right? Do you think Jesus said, hey, couldn't you pray with me an hour, guys? I mean, I don't believe that Christ was that way. I don't think that he was just this kind of, you know, uh, wet noodle type of guy that he sometimes depicted as. Hey, come on, just an hour? I'm getting ready to give my life. Come on, just an hour, guys. Think he took him by the shoulder? Maybe. Come on, please. I count it on you three. I count it on you. Do you feel it in God's heart? In Christ's heart, is it just me? I cannot read my King and Savior and look at him like a wet noodle. He's a master conductor of an orchestra. Have you ever seen a master conductor of an orchestra? I, I, I live two doors from Boston Symphony Hall, and man, I, I got to see Azawa in, in practice, and man, he, he would, you know, like, ah! he would scream, just like, mm, get it out of him. And Christ is like, come on, you got better. That was only mezzo forte, but come on. That's his, he's cheering on, but he's also being challenging. And so we went back and watched this, Luke chapter 22. We have different angles, Luke 22, verse 44. Christ went back after he tried to you know, arouse them to, to the level he needed, and he prayed more earnestly. This is not just about longer, but it's more about intensity. And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. There's a condition called hematidrosis, and, it's, and the blood can surface from the skin, and it's caused by extreme agony. Our Savior, our Savior always sets the model. He never asks us to do what he is not willing to do. I wonder what the pitch level was in that garden that night. I'm just guessing. I'm guessing. It was not mezzo piano. How about you? We must talk of this level, should we not? Is it inappropriate to go to this level? I say not. I say we must. As hard and as challenging as it is, I say we must. 
Let's not spend 12 weeks on fluffy prayer. Let's challenge ourselves. I'm challenged this. My prayer this week, God, more. I, I, you need more of me. You need more of me. With the dream and the vision that God is giving to this church, more, God, more. I'm only running on mezzo forte in my closet, more. And so as we kind of come to the last, you know, around in the last quarter of this track this morning, I do believe that you see people that wrestle a, a, a lot in prayer models for us. And I thought, let me, let's pick one and, and look at the outcomes and look at the reasons why, the practically, because I, I think I, you know, I want to take it out of this, this conceptual level down to a, a practical level. I think it's important. And so one of the greatest, you know, prayer uh, wrestling matches that we have in, in the scripture, of course, is Jacob and when he's wrestling with God in the book of Genesis. So if you do have your Bible with you, I invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 32 because we're going to park there the rest of the time. And I'm going to move pretty quickly because uh, there's a lot to say. And uh, so um, it, it was similar to Christ when you see prayer settings similar. Watch the similarities. Jacob was getting ready to face a very intense uh, intersection. His brother Esau, and they were estranged for many years. Many of you know that. And God told them, told, told Jacob, I need you to go, you know, reunite with him. He was very uptight about it, uh, just like Christ, you know, stressed out about what was to come. And so in Genesis chapter 32, verse 22, that night Jacob got up, took his two wives, his two maidservants, his 11 sons, and crossed over the ford of the Jabbok. After he had sent them across the stream... And he sent away all his possessions. That means he said to his wife, I'm going to go pray. I'm going to put my cell phone away. I'm going to take everything that's distracting. This is where it begins, by the way. Just want to give you this setting. I know we pray in our car on the way to work. Awesome. Keep it going. I know we pray at lunchtime break. Keep it going. But I just want you to know this kind of prayer requires away from everybody and away from everything. And so in verse 22, Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. I won't have the time to go into this, this uh, uh, the pre-birth Christ, but he is wrestling with, with uh, God in this passage, and uh, I know that's heavy for some of you, and I wish I had the time to land that plane a little easier, but he's wrestling with God. When the man saw that he could not, uh, could not overpower Jacob, he touched the socket of Jacob's hips. So this hip was wrenched and he's, and he, as he wrestled with the man. I will take note that this was not a 10-minute prayer. This was an all-night prayer meeting. This was an all-night wrestling match, okay? That's the, that's the context. Don't miss it. Then he said to the man, Jacob said to the man, let me go for it's daybreak. And so when I look at this wrestling match, there's some details in this story that happen that I believe that would help you to answer the question, well, why would we need to pray so intensely? Of course, this kind to, to, to reach this kind of impact, but on a practical level, here's some steps I think that are necessary. Here's the first one. It takes a cost to throw out the trash, okay? It takes, there's a cost to throw out the trash, God, when we come to him, forgives us instantaneously. God, I'm sorry. But it takes a while to search me, oh God, to dig down deep and to really 
Say, God, what is it that needs to, to, to get rid of, to rid myself of these things, to, to ask the Holy Spirit to, to begin to cleanse? I don't know about you. Maybe you're super prayers, and I'm an idiot, but I, when I, I just can't say, hey, God, thank you for the day. Thank you. Bless my sons. Bless my wife. Blah, 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 blah. Cool. Now I've taken inventory. It doesn't roll that way. Watch what happens. The man asked him, what is your name? Now, this is an odd question in the midst of a wrestling match. You know, they're duking it out. They're rolling around the ground. They're, you know, like this. Hey, by the way, what's your name? That's an odd thing to ask. But there's a reason that God asked because he's saying, what's your identity? You see, the name Jacob is like a, a thief because he was a, a ripoff artist, basically supplanters. Uh, It's something that uh, you get the picture. So he said, what is your identity? And Jacob, he answered, he said, my name is thief. My name is ripoff artist. And then the man says, your name will no longer be that because you've wrestled with God, but Israel, because you have wrestled, struggled with God and with men, and you've overcome It takes that amount of wrestling at times. I'll speak of myself for God to wrestle and wrangle up those things and say, can we deal with that? Because those things over years become deeply embedded. That's why we're told in Ephesians 4.31, get rid of all bitterness and rage and anger and brawling and slander, along with every other form of malice. A couple weeks ago, my dishwasher broke down, went to Sears, got a, you know, I'm looking for, of course, uh, quality price uh, because my wife wanted a good one. I wanted a cheap one. Uh, so we compromise and get a good deal. And I think, hey, here's a good deal. Then you go to ring it out. You want that delivered? No, I'll just throw it up on my back and just walk her home. Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to need a delivery. Uh, you know, okay, that's going to cost you. Okay, all righty. Okay. What do you want us to take the old one out? Okay, so in order to put the new one in, wouldn't you have to take the old one out? Yeah, we got to take it out. Okay, cool. Yeah, I definitely need to take it out. What do you want us to take it away, haul it away? No, I'm going to use it as a play toy for my kids. That's going to be awesome. Hey, who wants to hide in the dishwasher, you know, kind of thing? (laughs) Whoops, it's locked. No, just kidding. Uh, Yeah, that's going to cost you. Oh, it's going to cost me to take away the old one that doesn't work anymore. Yeah. I'm like, there it is. It's going to cost me something to get rid of that old junk inside. Time, intensity, searching, inventory. Oh, God, search me. Why? Because I want to be impactful for you, not because I want to be squeaky clean Boy Scout, not the goal. Jacob was about to be used of God. And in order to be used of God, he had to come to an intersection where he was no longer a cheat. And God said, I'm changing that old name, son. And it didn't happen in the first hour of prayer. It happened at daybreak. That's when often God moves. Here's the second thing that happened. Watch this. Genesis 32, verse 29. Jacob said, Hey, how about we exchange numbers and names? Speaking to God, please tell me your name. 
You know, Jesus was the master of answering a question with a question. He's, God answers this way, why do you ask my name? You know the reason he asked that, God asked that? He's like, you know me now. You know who I am, my identity. You've wrestled with me now, and you know me. I challenge you to date your wife for three minutes a year and see how well your marriage goes. It takes time. It takes intensity. It takes unshared attention, doesn't it? To listen, to walk, to take walks, to put down the TV remote, to put all those things. This is how a relationship happens. So it takes a wrestling of, uh, throughout the night to not only to, to remove that trash, to take that, to, uh, to ask God to really wrestle with that, but God, I want to know you more deeply. Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 23 says this, Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, nor the mighty man boast in his might, not let the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and he knows me. And I, I would submit to you that it takes a John Wesley in a prayer room on his knees for two hours, and you begin to know what God who he is, what he cares about. And then it leads us to this final level, and I, I would say to you that you don't get to the final Rachmaninoff level without these two. See, if I don't throw out the trash, I don't really get to, to know the heart of God because I'm still in the way. And I really want to know God. And I don't really, and, and once I know God, I know what he cares about, and then when I know what he cares about, we are elevated to the most important stratosphere that you will ever experience as a Christian, and that is the macro-narrative stratosphere that you get in tune with the bigger picture of God. I've had an abscess tooth all week. I hate it, but I look at it as a, a, an earthly distraction. I will take that antibiotic or whatever it is, blah, 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 Kapow! I'm busy over here. Because that's not, my that's not my narrative. That thing is not my narrative. I want my kids to make good grades. It's not my narrative. I want them to be of good character. It's not my main narrative. I want them, you know, my house not to fall apart. That's not my narrative. I want to have fun and have hobbies. I'm still working on that. <laughs> uh, but that's not my narrative. You know what I mean? And when you spend time and you wrestle with God and you've thrown out the old dishwasher and you get to know the heart of God, all of a sudden it's like, wow, there's something really important. Discipleship is important. Having people come to Christ is important. All those things, that's important. And I'd say that you don't know that until you really wrestle with God. Watch what happens. She spent time, they spent time together. In Genesis chapter 32, verse 28 then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel. This is a whole different level, Jacob. You've only been thinking about your, what's good for you. You've cheated out what's good for you. You've been freaked out by your brother, and that's been your narrative. And today, he said, I'm giving you a bigger narrative, much bigger. You're going to be named Israel. Just think about that. 
just think about how God uses a, a cheater. Okay, let me, let me end here. So uh, my personal faith hero in this lifetime is Billy Graham. Our first son's, oldest son's middle name is Graham. And uh, I went back to study the history books in uh, July uh, 13th, 1949. No one knew who Billy Graham was by that, uh, in that moment. There was a prayer meeting in Indiana, the Youth for Christ prayer meeting. There were some leaders that were burdened for the mezzo-piano level of the church and our culture. And they got on their knees and said, let's pray all night. Five hours in, it was 3 a.m. in the morning. And uh, they called it frontal prayer, meaning they were pushing the front line. As we sang this morning, they were pressing in to God. And God laid on their hearts collectively to pray for a man who would bring revival to the country, that would be used to bring revival in the country. Three o'clock in the morning, right in the midst of that room, there was a man named Billy Graham, a young man. July of 1949. They prayed, they surrounded him. They surrounded him and they prayed. They kept praying through the night. And Billy Graham got off his knees in that moment, in that prayer meeting, and he said, I have a scripture verse that God has laid on my heart. It comes from Joel 3.13. Swing the sickle for the harvest is ripe. Come trample the grapes for the wine press is full and the vats overflow so great is their wickedness. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. And Billy Graham, after he read that, he said these exact words. He said, boys, I'm taking that passage with me to the West Coast. And I believe that if we will put in the sickle, we shall reap an unprecedented harvest of souls for Christ. Two months later, three months later, September, Billy Graham kicked off his very first crusade. And the, and the largest tent ever built for a crusade, it held 6,000 people, 6,000 chairs. After the first night, 6,000 chairs was not enough. 7,000, 8,000, 9,000 people poured in. Some nights up to 15,000 people all surrounding the tent. Why? Because he was great? No, because the power of prayer, this kind of prayer, had given him the fuel to do what he needed to do. The revival was planned for three weeks. That three weeks turned into four and to five and to six and to seven. Two months, they were jamming that pack full of people. 350,000 people with 3,000 people coming to Christ on his very first crusade. I found a little old film. You know how sometimes they're a little corny and shaky? But I, I, I watched this film and I just, I wept. I wept for the hunger, the passion. At the end, you'll see him preaching. This is a document 
a documentary of his uh, documentation of his very first preaching uh, revival. What a what a gem we have! Wouldn't you love to have a film of Wesley standing on a crate in a factory? Oh man, watch this! This is crazy. The city of Los Angeles, California, has grown to such proportions that it covers many square miles between the Sierra Madre Mountains and the Pacific Ocean. In this area, four million men, women, and children live going to and fro, seeking, reaching, waiting. From Minneapolis comes the young evangelist Billy Graham and song leader Cliff Barrows, his wife, Billy Barrows, and Beverly Shea, the gospel singer, to cooperate with Christ for Greater Los Angeles in a great revival campaign. At the corner of Washington and Hill Streets in the city of Los Angeles, the largest tent ever erected for a revival meeting is now complete and is called the Canvas Cathedral, and the tent is filled to capacity day after day as men and women flock to hear the gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. There are 6,500 people seated here in this canvas cathedral, and several thousands more stand around the sides of the tent. Approximately 350,000 total attendance in two months. I do not believe that any man, that any man can solve the problems of life without Jesus Christ. There are tremendous marital problems. There are physical problems. There are financial problems. There are problems of sin and habit that cannot be solved outside the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. Have you trusted Christ Jesus as Savior? Tonight, I am glad to tell you as we close that the Lord Jesus Christ can be received. Your sins forgiven, your burdens lifted, your problems solved by turning your life over to him, repenting of your sin, and turning to Jesus Christ as saint. Shall we pray? Billy Graham preached to 215 million people in his lifetime in 185 countries. This kind of prayer. Father... I know that there are some in this room that may be overwhelmed today. That's okay. You never lowered the bar, but you were compassionate to say all are invited. All are invited to play Rachmaninoff. But you were also real and true. And, and in that way, God, you loved us enough to make a distinction that if we want to see certain results, God, we can't cheapen our lesson, our time, or our intensity with you. So very simply, God, today and boldly, I pray for those in this room who are stirred, that that stirring will not wear off as soon as they get in their car and into their narrative, but God, you, that stirring would become a conviction they would not just linger, but cling at those 
who would intensify, God, in their time with you, understanding that this kind of prayer. So, Father, I pray for all of our church, wherever people are just learning to pray, fantastic. For those who are increasing time through prayer in, throughout this collection of conversations, fantastic. But today, God, I pray for those who want to live a fortissimo life, who want to make fortissimo impact in the kingdom. Remind us, God, please remind us in a generation of shortcutting, remind us, God, that life doesn't work that way and the kingdom does not work that way. Father, today we give ourselves to you no matter where we are in this journey. And we ask you, God, to remind us unashamedly and unlimited, God, that you call us to give our all. I pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.